Let us pray. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, welcome back. Um, good to see you all here today. We have a special guest in the back of the room. I sort of feel as though um, I'm being examined. Bishop Allison is in the back, and um, you know, it's like the student all of a sudden being examined by the professor. So if I'm a little intimidated today, I'm sorry about that. Well, we are in Ephesians chapter 5 this morning, so if you have your Bibles, if you'd be so kind as to open them to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 15 through 20 today. So you can either open your Bibles or log on. But here's what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. As we look at this particular section of Ephesians, it is helpful for us to remember, uh, just briefly, the pattern for Paul's letters. When Paul wrote letters, um, particularly letters to churches, this doesn't necessarily apply to pastoral epistles, to letters to people like Timothy, for example, But when Paul wrote letters, particularly to churches, it was his habit to put a whole section of doctrine at the beginning, doctrine which was then followed by practice. Now, Paul does that for a reason. There are some people that, of course, want to just get to the nuts and bolts. Tell me what I got to do. And so they like the practical section. There are others, of course, that prefer the doctrinal section. Oh, I'm I'm very interested in the great doctrines, the great teachings of the faith, the great truths, and so forth. But Paul understood that these two things go hand in hand. In order to be followers of Jesus Christ, we need to understand the content of the Christian faith. We need to understand what Christianity really is. This is not something that you and I create or make up of our own. This is the divine revelation that has been given to us. God has spoken to us. And so Paul emphasizes doctrine as being absolutely essential to the life of the church and absolutely essential to the life of the individual Christian. And so you find that in many of his letters, there's this whole section of doctrine at the beginning. But lest we think that it is merely an academic exercise, this Christian life, Paul then goes on to explain always in the latter part of his epistles that this doctrine has an implication for our lives, for the way we live. We have been saved from something, but we've also been what? Saved for something, absolutely. And that, of course, is what Paul does. Now, that is the case here in the epistle to the Ephesians. Uh, Paul's first part of this letter deals with the great doctrines of the faith. Now, this is a marvelously concise letter. Uh, Ephesians is only six chapters long. So it's short compared to something like 1st and 2nd Corinthians. It's short compared to something like the Epistle to the Romans. It is concise, and yet while it is concise, it is marvelously comprehensive as well. 
Somebody has described, John Stott has described Ephesians as a mini-course in theology centered on the church. And depending upon who's counting, there are at least 27 different Christian doctrines that Paul touches upon in just this one epistle alone. So that's quite extraordinary when you think about just six chapters. 27 separate Christian doctrines. I've listed just a few of them up there. Uh, He touches on the doctrine of the Trinity. He touches on the person and work of Jesus Christ, the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of election the doctrine of justification by grace through faith, the doctrine of sanctification. He deals with heaven. He deals with angels, demons, the church, the communion of saints. He deals with the sacraments. He deals with Christian ministry, and the list goes on and on. And Paul touches on at least those doctrines and many more in just these six chapters. But then when we get to where we are today, Paul not only deals with doctrine, but he also deals with application. He's saying, now all of those great truths, and they are truths, they are eternal truths, they've been given to us by God the Holy Spirit, all of those truths have implication for the way you and I live our lives. This is not just ethereal theology, this has practical implications for you and for me. And that's what Paul has been talking about in the sections that we've been looking at. When you think about the application, for example, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32, Paul talks in this language of putting off and putting on. Putting off one set of clothing, as it were, putting on a new set of clothing. He says, put off falsehood and put on the truth. Not just put on truthfulness, although Paul does mean that, but he says, put on the truth. Truth with a capital T, the truth of the gospel. In Ephesians chapter 5, he says, be imitators of God. We said that the Greek word that is translated there as imitators, an interesting word, it's the Greek word mimite, it's the word from which we get our term mimic. Paul's basically saying, mimic God in those divine attributes that he communicates to us. And then last week we saw that Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 14 says, Now walk as children of the light. You were once darkness. Paul doesn't even say you were once in the darkness, although that was certainly true. We were in the darkness. But Paul actually is stronger than that. He says, you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. You have been transferred from the realm of Satan and his power to the realm of Christ. You were once darkness. That is, you contributed to the moral decay of the world. But now you are light. And, of course, Jesus echoes that and talks about being the light of the world, what that means. So that's what Paul is saying. He's saying all of these great truths that we've been talking about, they have implications for our lives. And they should mean that you and I, as Christians, live differently in the world. Now, in the section that we just read, Paul goes on to elaborate on this. Yes, he says you need to put off falsehood and put on the truth. Yes, you need to be imitators of God. Yes, you need to walk in darkness, no longer walk in darkness, but walk in light. But he goes on to say part of that also means that you need to walk, look at verse 15 there, walk not as unwise, but as wise. We are to walk as wise people, living not as unwise, but as wise people. If there is one thing I think that is in short supply in the world today, it's wisdom. It's wisdom. Now, you have to pause and ask yourself, what exactly does Paul mean by wisdom? 
because some would argue that we have a great deal of wisdom in the world in which we live. Well, in order to understand what Paul means by wisdom, it's helpful to understand what wisdom is not. Wisdom is not the same thing as information. Now, you and I live in an information age, don't we? In fact, if you want to know almost any fact imaginable, what do you do? You pull out your cell phone, and that's right, you, you Google it. We live in the age of Google and Siri and Yahoo, and you can get any number of facts. We have access to facts in a way that no previous generation ever did. I mean, some of you remember, the, the best place to find facts was the Encyclopedia Britannica. And if you didn't have a set of Encyclopedia Britannica, you had to go find a set of Encyclopedia Britannica. You had to go to the library. We're living in an age now where we actually have more information available to us, more technology available. Do you realize there's more technology in your smartphone than NASA had when they put a man on the moon? That's no exaggeration. That is a fact. We've got handheld computers. Some of you may remember when computers first came out in the 1950s and the 1960s, they filled whole rooms. We are living in an information age. In fact, the deluge of information is almost overwhelming in terms of the the amount of information that is coming in. But when the Bible speaks of wisdom, that is not what it means. It does not mean merely information. Somebody says, well, then if it's not information, perhaps it's knowledge. What is knowledge? Well, depending upon who's defining it, knowledge is something more than information. It it is taking the information and beginning to see how things fit together, how systems work, how the pieces of the puzzle all interconnect. And certainly knowledge is a step up from information. But even though knowledge is important, knowledge is not the same thing as wisdom either. The poet T.S. Eliot once asked this question. He says, where is the wisdom that we have lost in knowledge? And where is the knowledge that we have lost in information? I oftentimes put it this way. You've probably heard me say it before. Knowledge and information can tell you how to split the atom. Knowledge and information can tell you how to clone a sheep. What knowledge and information cannot do is tell you whether or not you should split the atom or whether or not you should clone a sheep. For that, you need something that transcends information and mere knowledge. And that's what the Bible is really talking about when it speaks of wisdom. And we are to seek after wisdom. We are to desire wisdom. It is more precious than rubies. Wisdom is not something, hear me very clearly, wisdom is not something that you can attain merely by a formal education or a university or college degree. Now, I've been around people who have been in a university setting, and I can tell you they are very knowledgeable. Some of them are anything but wise. So what is wisdom then? Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. What does it mean to be wise? Well, first of all, the Bible is very clear. Wisdom... Unlike knowledge, unlike information, is something that does not come merely from a formal education. It is something that comes from God. The psalmist says this, Proverbs echoes it, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
So the first thing we need to understand about wisdom is that it is a God-given gift. You can have an entire alphabet behind your name. That is not necessarily going to make you wise. Not in the sense that Paul means it here. Wisdom comes from God. And for our purposes, wisdom basically means that divine capacity, it's a divine capacity because it comes from God and God alone, it's a divine capacity to see things aright, to see life and the world as they really are. Not as they are projected to be, but as they really are, to see the world, to see life aright, and then on that basis... To act accordingly. See, when you see the world for what it really is, when you see life for what it really is, when you understand your purpose for what it really is, and then you act accordingly, Paul says, you're walking wisely. So wisdom could very well be said to be judgment. Sound judgment. See, it's possible to have all the information in the world and not have sound judgment. It's possible to have all the information in the world and make foolish choices. So Paul says, as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, yes, we are to put off our old ways. We are to put on new ways. We are to walk no longer in darkness. We are to walk in the light. But he says we are also to walk, because we are God's people, And we have God's Holy Spirit. We are to walk no longer as unwise people, but as wise people. And that's one of the reasons why I say if there's one thing that is in short supply in our day, it is wisdom. Because having thrown off God, you're going to hear a sermon about that today, because God is no longer the center, we are doing what? We are walking according to our own ideas, to our own knowledge, to our own information, And I don't know about you, but I'm pretty much convinced that we've made a mess of the world as a consequence of that. And so Paul says, as believers, we are to walk as wise men and wise women. Now, we can only do that if we're in that relationship with Jesus Christ. But, of course, Paul is writing here to the Ephesians. He's writing to believers. This is a message for believers. This is not necessarily a message for unbelievers. Paul's saying this applies to us as the members of the church. We are the ones. You can't expect the world to walk wisely when it doesn't have a relationship with God. But as believers, because we do, we are expected to be different. We are to walk wisely. Now, Paul goes on to suggest to us that there are three marks of the man or the woman who walks wisely in the world. Three marks. And what are they? In verse 15, Paul says the first mark is this. They make the best use of the time. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. Make the best use of time. One of the things that is unique about Christianity, there are many things. Uh, In a couple of weeks, I'm going to preach a sermon on this. Um, It's going to be a politically incorrect sermon. Just, just letting you know beforehand, it's going to be a politically correct sermon, incorrect sermon. And the reason for that is we're taught in our day and age that if there is one thing that you must not do is you must not exalt one position or one religion or one viewpoint above another. That's politically incorrect. 
well, I'm going to be politically incorrect when I preach that sermon because I am going to exalt Christianity above every other religion in the world. Christianity is truly unique. And one of the things that makes it unique, as Paul sees it here, is that Christianity is a religion that takes time and history seriously. Now, this is one of the things that was very disturbing to the Apostle Paul when he went to Athens in the book of Acts. I've often said that when Paul visited Athens, of all the places that he went, and Paul really was a world traveler. I think he was a very cosmopolitan person. To begin with, he had a very fine religious education, as you all know. He'd been trained under the foremost rabbi of his day, a man by the name of Gamaliel. Paul also had what I think was a very fine secular education, however. Paul was raised in the city of Tarsus, which was one of the great university cities of the ancient world. And there's much to indicate, particularly when he arrives in Athens, that Paul knew something of a secular, classical education because he was able to actually debate with some of the Athenians and quote to them from their own poets, Cleanthes and Aratus and others. You wouldn't have been able to, Peter would not have been able to do that. But Paul was able to do that, I think, because of his background. And so when I imagine Paul going to Athens, of all the places that he visited, I always thought that Paul would have probably been very excited about going to Athens. I mean, Athens. It, it was the intellectual center of the ancient world. Now, it was in the late afternoon of its glory at the time that Paul got there. The Athenians had been involved in a very costly war with the Spartans and so forth, and they were pretty much on the decline by that point, but still it was considered to be the intellectual center of the ancient world, the kind of place where there would have been a great deal of discussion and argument and intellectual ferment, the kind of place Paul would have loved to go. But we're told when Paul arrived in Athens, he was greatly discouraged. There were two things that discouraged Paul in particular. First was the idolatry that he found. He walked through the cities and there were temples everywhere. If you've been to Athens and you've been to the Acropolis or you've been down to the old market and you've seen the great temples and the ruins of the temples, then you know that there were lots of gods and goddesses in the ancient world. In fact, they used to say it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. Paul even found a temple dedicated to an unknown god. That was discouraging to him because these people were supposed to be enlightened. And they were knowledgeable but they lacked wisdom. Wisdom in the sense that Paul meant it. So he was discouraged by that. The other thing that discouraged him were the philosophers that he met there. The Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. And one of the reasons that Paul was depressed by the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers is because they lacked hope. You know, human beings can survive without many things. You and I cannot go long without hope. And the Epicureans and the Stoics were pretty much a hopeless people. The Stoics basically believed that stuff happens to you. You know, you go through life and sometimes good things happen, sometimes bad stuff happens. You've seen the bumper sticker. Happens. That's pretty much the way they looked at it. Stuff happens. So what do you do? Stiff upper lip. Now, the Stoics were a noble people. Marcus Aurelius was a Stoic. They were a, a noble people. They just weren't a very happy people. Now, on the other side, you had the Epicureans. They were the followers of a fellow by the name of Epicurus. And they had a very simple philosophy. They believed that stuff happens too. So the best thing you can do in life, the best thing you should do in life is grab all the gusto you can get. You only go around once, folks. So if it feels good, do it. And if it doesn't feel good, Avoid it. 
Are the Epicureans and Stoics still around today? You better believe it, they're still around today. Paul found them to be just as discouraging. And all of this stemmed from their view of history, their view of time, that, that time had no purpose, direction whatsoever. History wasn't going anywhere. It was just like a carnival barker's wheel of fortune. Round and round and round she goes, and where she stops, nobody knows. It's like the seasons of the year. Spring turns into summer. Summer turns into autumn. Autumn into winter. Winter back into spring again. And the whole thing goes on and on and on again. Henry Ford was once asked what he thought about history, and he said, history is bunk. It is the succession of one damn thing after another. Well, that was the Greek view of history, you see. There's no, there's no purpose in life. There's no purpose in history. There's no purpose in time. But Paul, as a follower of Jesus Christ, having been raised as a Jew, Paul understood that time and history do have a reason. They do have a purpose. They do have a direction. And they are, therefore, infinitely valuable. I've said this to you before, that history can basically be divided up for, for the sake of simplicity, in Paul's mind, you have a beginning, the story of creation, the fall. You have a center portion of history, what you might call a climax, when Jesus Christ comes into the world. And we see that as a line of demarcation, don't we? We measure all history forward and backward from that central point, don't we? B.C. and A.D., before Christ and in the year of our Lord. Now, there have been those who've tried to change that. Now we're doing BCE before the common era. But it still doesn't make any difference because it's the arrival of Christ. <laughs> that, that, that's still the line of demarcation, you'll notice. So that, that, that's the high point. And then what? things seem to get a little quieter again. You think that was the end of the story, but that's not the end of the story because there is what? A grand and glorious finale when that same Jesus Christ who came in great humility, who mounted the arms of the cross, will appear again with power and great glory to what? judge the world, and set this broken, fallen culture right. So Paul knew that that's, that's where history was moving. That's what was happening. How many of you remember the old newsreels that they used to show before um, movies? Some of them were produced by the Time Life Corporation. They used to go in there. They're called the March of Time. And they would always begin with the roll of a stirring drum or the blast of a bugle, and then some self-assured announcer would come on, and you would get all of these pictures of what was happening in the world. And even during World War II, when there happened to be a military setback, you were still left with the impression that for the most part, what? Time really was marching on. Progress was inevitable. Well, if you ask most young people today, do you think progress is inevitable? Many of them are going to tell you not by a long shot. They're not convinced at all that history is moving in the right direction. They have adopted a view very similar to that of the Greeks. It's just the same old stuff over and over again. Well, Paul knew that that was not the case. He knew that God was, in fact, in work in history. And as a consequence of that, time, time was of the utmost importance. It was of the utmost importance. It's interesting, in Galatians, the Apostle Paul said, at just the right time, at just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law, to do what? To redeem those under the law. I want to suggest to you that in terms of our calling to serve God in the world, 
you and I have two things going for us. We have space and we have time. Those are the two things that you and I have going for us. If you think about it, they are in some ways the coinage of life. God has put us in a particular place. We are here in Charleston, South Carolina. We are not in Philadelphia. We're not in Bangladesh. We're not in London. We're not in South America. We are here in Charleston, and we are here right now. We are not in Charleston in 1680 when this colony was getting started. We are not in Charleston in 1776. We are in Charleston in the year 2019. So we've been given time and we have been given space. And Paul says if we are wise people, that is to say we are in step with God the Holy Spirit, then we will recognize the value of our time and our place. And we will act accordingly. That's wisdom. Now, this is highlighted when you consider the various Greek terms for time. Uh, There are actually any number of Greek words that can be translated, not just as time, but as things associated with time, hour, age, etc. But the two that I want to draw your attention to is the word chronos, from which we get our term chronology. It's what I call clock time. When most of us think of time, that's what we think of. We think of chronos. Seconds flow into minutes. Minutes flow into hours. Hours flow into days. Days flow into months. Months flow into years. Years into decades and so on. That's what we think of when we think of time. We think of the clock, the watch. And that seems to be what we're so concerned with. We have to have good time management. You ever hear about that? Good time manager. Always a good time manager. I'll be honest with you. I like time managers. I'm one of those people that absolutely believes in starting on time. The service is going to start on time. Let me just give you a fair warning here. Some of you see me coming in late and they say, oh, I'm not late. Oh, they're not going to start without you. The heck they're not. (laughs) If that's what you think, you don't know Pat Gould. I'm telling you. When the clock strikes a half hour, we're going down that aisle whether the rector's there or not. It does not matter. I believe in starting on time. Now, I don't always end on time, but I always start on time. And that's what we think of when we think of time, isn't it? Starting on time, ending on time, managing to get the work done in the allotted time. But when Paul uses... The word for time here, making the most of the time, making the best use of the time, the word that he uses here is not chronos. He uses the word kairos. It means a specific moment in time. The opportune time. What we would call an opportunity. Now the best illustration that I know to illustrate an opportunity and a missed opportunity comes from the life of Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the poet. In 1797, Coleridge produced one of his most famous works, Kublai Khan. 
famous poem. What many people don't realize, however, is that it was an unfinished poem. Uh, the story behind it is, is really quite remarkable. Um, Samuel Taylor Coleridge um, was one night uh, reading a book about the Far East, and he wasn't feeling well. There are any number of reasons why he might not have been feeling well. We'll not go into them right now. But he took an anodyne to ease his discomfort. And before long, he drifted off to sleep. And when he drifted off to sleep, he had this very vivid image. And when he woke from his sleep, he was still groggy, but he immediately ran to the desk, pulled out a piece of paper, took a pen in hand, and began writing down the first lines of what he intended to be a 100-line epic poem called Kubla Khan. He was having what we would call a brainstorm. And he was writing and writing and writing and writing and writing, and the words were just flowing, and it's just the vivid image that he had in his mind, and he's writing and writing and writing, and all of a sudden there came him knocking at the door. And he was interrupted. And he just continued to write, write, write. Whoever it was was persistent. They kept knocking at the door. So finally the story goes, Coleridge, in frustration, put down the pen and went to the door and answered it. When he finally was able to get back to his work, he sat down, took pen in hand. He said, the image, the vision had faded from his memory. And try as he might, he could not get it back. And after several aborted attempts, he finally put down the pen for good. And Kublai Khan was never finished. Now that's what you call the opportune moment. It was there, but it was not going to stay there. And if he'd been wise, he would have done what? Ignored the door and finished the poem. That's what Paul means when he talks about walking wisely. He said there will be opportunities that will be presented to you. You are living in this time. You are living in this space. If you are walking wisely, you are in step with the Spirit, you will recognize that opportunities to do what? To live for Christ. Opportunities to share the gospel will present themselves, and the wise man, the wise woman will what? Recognize those opportunities for what they are and seize them. Because guess what? They will not linger. That's why Paul says don't walk unwisely. The unwise person allows those opportunities to slip by. The wise man, the wise woman, seizes them. I ask you the question, what are the opportunities that are before you today? Every day, my friends, presents you with a unique opportunity. If you're wise, you will recognize what those opportunities are. If you are wise, you will seize those opportunities. It's interesting to note how time, kairos, is depicted in ancient artwork. It's normally depicted as that kind of a figure, holding a scale balanced by a razor. Time is like that, isn't it? Balanced by a razor. He's got a great forelock of hair in the front, you'll notice, but his head in the back looks like a helmet because it's bald. And he's got wings upon his feet. That's kairos. That's the opportune time. 
In the bottom of one of these statues in ancient Greece, there was a series of questions and answers. The first question was, what is thy name? The answer was, my name is Opportunity. Why hast thou wings upon thy feet, that I may fly away swiftly? Why hast thou a great forelock, that men may take hold of me when I come? Why art thou bald and back? Because when I am gone, none can lay hold of me. See, to walk wisely is to recognize that time is a precious thing, my friends. It is fleeting. You are only given so much of it. It's the gold and silver silver coins of your life. Paul says if we are wise, we will recognize the opportunities. Do you recognize the opportunities? One of the things I pray for almost every single day is I pray that God will grant me the grace to see the opportunities that I have to witness for Him. And number two, God will grant me the courage to take hold of them when they come. Because let me tell you something, they will not linger. Is there somebody in your family with whom you need to be reconciled? Is the opportunity mo- opportune moment come? Is there somebody in your family that does not know the gospel, doesn't know the faith? Is the opportunity presenting itself? Will you take hold of that opportunity or will you let it fleet away? Paul says the wise man, the wise woman, makes the best use of the time. He goes on to say something else. He says, look then carefully how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Second mark of a wise man or a wise woman is they not only make the best use of time, they seize the opportunities when they present themselves, but they understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, I have to say that as a pastor, of all the areas where I think people struggle the most, this is the one where people really struggle. Discerning the will of the Lord. Now, people struggle with all kinds of things. Sometimes they struggle with the mystery of prayer. How am I supposed to pray? How many of you sometimes struggle in prayer? If you're not struggling in prayer, you ain't doing it. That's the first thing. You struggle with prayer? We all struggle with prayer to some degree, don't we? Sometimes we wonder, well, well, what's the purpose of prayer? What is prayer designed to accomplish? Does prayer change God? Does prayer change me? What should I pray for? How should I pray? Etc. Prayer can be a struggle for us. And as much as prayer is a struggle for us, I think that discerning the will of the Lord for many people is an even greater difficulty. It's even more challenging. Who am I supposed to marry? Should I take that job or the other one? Should we continue to live in this city or not? How many children should we have? Should we have one? Should we have two? Should we be the average American family and have two and a half? I mean, what should we do? See, we struggle with this, discerning what the will of the Lord is. Well, I want you to understand that that is important. But when Paul talks about understanding the will of the Lord, that's not what he's talking about. That's what we call the specific will of God. His specific will for your individual life. Questions like, what job should I take? What person should I marry? Which city should I live in? 
But when Paul talks about understanding what the will of the Lord is, he's not talking about the specific will. He's talking about the general or moral will of God. That is to say, Paul is saying the wise person understands what God's ultimate will is for the world and for humanity in general. Because God does have a plan for us. He has a plan for the church. He has a plan for the world. And Paul is saying the wise person understands what that will is and they get on board with it. Now, let me just say, that's not to say that God is not interested in the specific will for your life. And those little things that you're really concerned about, God is concerned about those too. But I'm going to tell you one thing. God treats us as adults. God treats us as adults. And oftentimes in Scripture, one of the things that you will notice is that God lays down certain principles for us as Christians, certain parameters, and we're expected to live within those parameters. And if we live within those parameters, they're freedom. So, for example, when it comes to who should I marry, God lays down certain parameters. One of those parameters is you should not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Well, that's a parameter. You should be seeking out a Christian spouse. Missionary dating is out, by the way. But you are to marry a Christian spouse. Now, let's say you're, married, you're, you're, you're dating three young women, a brunette, a blonde, a red, and they're all Christians. Paul would say, well, marry whichever one you want. As long as they're believers living within the parameters, you've got freedom to act. So you, you need to understand when it comes to God's specific will, He wants you to live within those parameters, but within those parameters, there's great freedom. But what God really wants you to do is understand what his moral will is for the whole of the church, for the world, and then you get on board with it. What does the Bible say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else that you need will be what? Added unto you. But the first thing you have to do is seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So as believers, that's that's what Paul is talking about, understanding what the general or moral will of God is. And once you understand that, you get on board with it. The way I've described this in the past, I've said it's like surfing. Now, I'm not a surfer. I know that comes as a great revelation to you. Wouldn't it shock you if I I really did hang ten? I mean... But those of you who do surf, you know this much. The only way to surf is to ride the wave. You don't control the wave. The wave controls you. You try to fight against a wave when you surf, and you're going to be choking, and you're going to be beaten up, and all kinds of things. No, what you do is you catch the wave as it comes in, and you ride the wave to shore. That's what Paul is talking about here. He says, you understand what the will of God is. You seek the scriptures diligently. You begin to understand what God longs for his people, what he desires for his people, and then you as the individual, you do what? You get on board with that. And you live in accordance with it. Paul says that's what a wise person does. They don't fight against the wave. They get on board with it. So we understand what the will of the Lord is. Here's the final mark of a wise person, Paul says. 
They are filled with the Spirit. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, seizing the opportunities. And you have to do that because why? The days are evil. You are not foolish, but you understand what the will of the Lord is, and you get on board with what God's will is for the world, for humanity, and for the church. And the third thing is, he said, you don't get drunk with wine, that is debauchery, but you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I need to make some differentiation here because I think there's some confusion sometimes when it comes to terms. You oftentimes hear people talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit. You hear people talking about being baptized uh, by the Holy Spirit. I want you to understand that baptism by the Holy Spirit and filling with the Holy Spirit are not necessarily the same thing. In fact, they're not the same thing, biblically speaking. When the Bible talks about being baptized by the Holy Spirit... That is what we would call the act of regeneration. That is union with Christ. That is how we are united with Christ. And what's interesting is baptism by the Holy Spirit is never urged in Scripture, never urged on anybody. Because, you see, the wind blows where it will. Holy Spirit moves as he will. This is, incidentally, the reason why baptism is the initiatory right into the life of the church. Because that's what baptism of the Holy Spirit is. If you are a Christian, if you've been reborn by the Holy Spirit, then you have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. That's that's what we're talking about, the the, the whole act of regeneration. Well, that's what the New Testament speaks when it speaks of baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's the reason it's never urged on a person, because we can't manufacture it. God does it. Well, what does it mean then to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, to be filled with the Holy Spirit means to be empowered for a specific purpose. If you are a Christian, you've already been baptized by the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be empowered by the Spirit for a specific purpose or task. It's interesting, and again, you always have to go back to the Bible to see how these phrases are used rather than turn to the culture and see how the culture is using them. What does the Bible say? Well, it's interesting, that phrase, be filled with the Holy Spirit, is used at least ten times in the book of Acts at Pentecost. Ten times in the book of Acts after Pentecost. And only on a few occasions did it have anything to do with the charismatic gifts, speaking in tongues, etc. The one unifying element in all ten of those separate occasions is that each time a person who is filled with the Spirit begins to testify to Jesus Christ. Now, we see that with the Apostle Paul. great example of this at the time of Paul's conversion. You know, Paul was struck blind on the road to Damascus. Remember that? And we're told that he went into Damascus, led by the hand. God sent a prophet, Ananias, to lay hands on him. Ananias didn't want to do it initially. He knew all about Paul. But eventually he relented. He came. He laid his hands on Paul, and he said, The Lord has sent me to lay my hands on you that you may receive your sight. Now receive the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Paul, we're told, is filled with the Holy Spirit. Something like scales falls from his eyes. And two sentences later, you discover that Paul is all of a sudden standing up and testifying to Jesus Christ. Now, all he had at that point was a rudimentary knowledge of Christian things. But having been filled with the Holy Spirit, the first thing that he did was what? He began to testify to Jesus Christ. Every time in the book of Acts, that phrase, be filled with the Holy Spirit, is used It is used as a verbal witness. 
whoever the person is that has been filled with the Holy Spirit, is bearing witness. They are sharing the gospel with others. So when Paul says to us as Christians, we are not to walk as unwise, but as wise, what is he saying to us? He's saying we are to do three things. We are to make the most of the time. We are to redeem the time. We are to know what the will of the Lord is, and we are to get on board with it. The rest of the world is rebelling against God, rebelling against His will. It's why the world is in such a terrible place. God is not, as Bishop Allison is going to say at the later service, at the center. But for Christians, He must be at the center. And then we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's interesting to note that Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and the next thing he talks about is doing something verbally. He talks about psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's what we would call worship. Wise person who's filled with the Holy Spirit is engaged in worship. He says, make melody with your heart. That's what we would call praising the Lord. And finally, he says, we give thanks in all things. Are you thankful to God? William Shakespeare and King Lear said, how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. Well, that's true of us and our children. How much truer it is when it comes to God and his children. Now, there's one other thing that I want to say to you today. There is another word for time. The Greek word is the word noon. Not N-O-O-N, but N-U-N. And it can be translated as now. Now, Paul says. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, making the best use of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And do it now. Why now? Because time is precious. And you never know if the opportunity will come again. Now is the time to throw off the foolishness of the world. Now is the time to put on the wisdom of God. Jonathan Edwards once put it this way. He said, time is so short and the work which we have to do it in is so great that we have none of it to spare. The work which we have to do to prepare for eternity must be done in time or it may never be done at all. In his own diary, Jonathan Edwards, a very wise man, wrote these words, I resolve to live with all my might while I do live. I resolve never to lose one moment of time and to improve my use of time in the most profitable way I possibly can. I resolve never to do anything I wouldn't do if it were the last hour of my life. Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Why? Because now the days are evil.
May God, by the grace of His Holy Spirit, grant us a special measure of His wisdom. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for Paul's words to us. We are called as Christian people. We are given a great calling, a great privilege to witness to you in this world. You have redeemed us at countless costs, not by virtue of anything that we have done. We bring nothing to the table. But you have mercy on us. And Paul reminds us that we have been saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no man may boast. But we were created in Christ Jesus for good works to live differently, to be a light to enlighten the nations. Grant us the grace not to be foolish anymore, not to walk in darkness, but in the marvelous light of your grace and mercy. Grant us the grace to make the most of the time, to be filled with the Spirit, to know what your will is and get on board with it. That in so doing, others may come to know us.